This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So good afternoon and welcome. Welcome everybody to today's Loop Luncheon. Uh, my name is Tom Miles. For those of you who haven't met me, I'm the Dean of the Law School. And I'm delighted to welcome you today, uh, both to the Loop Luncheon and to the first event that kicks off our reunion. Uh, we've got a lot of reunion celebrants here today, uh, many of whom have traveled far distances and some of whom have traveled almost no distance at all. Uh, and we're very pleased to welcome all of you. We've got 950 registrants for reunion, so we're very pleased with a terrific turnout from our loyal graduates. Uh, my duty here is just to introduce today's speaker, Justin Driver, and it's something that I'm just thrilled to do. Uh, Justin has been with the law school now for several years, and Justin has the most enviable academic credentials. Uh, he received his undergraduate degree from Brown University, and Justin holds two master's degrees, one from Duke and one from Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. He graduated from Harvard Law School, where he was an articles editor of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, he served as a law clerk to Judge Merrick Garland of the US uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and then served as a law clerk for not one, but two Supreme Court justices, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Breyer. And I just want to note uh, one thing uh, about Justin. Just last week, I happened to be in Washington, DC, and I happened to meet Judge Garland. And the very first thing he said to me when I told him that I was from the University of Chicago Law School was he said, Justin Driver, you have Justin Driver on your faculty, and you're really lucky to have him on your faculty because he's outstanding. So uh, prior to joining our faculty, Justin taught at the University of Texas. He visited at the University of Virginia and Stanford and Harvard. Uh, his research interests include constitutional law, constitutional theory, and the intersection of race and legal institutions. I'm very happy to report that just this fall, Justin became the Harry N. Wyatt Professor of Law. His talk today is entitled, The Southern Manifesto in Myth and Memory, and Justin will take questions at the end of his presentation. So please, everyone, welcome Professor Justin Driver. Okay, so thanks for coming out today. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, the title of my talk is The Southern Manifesto in Myth and Memory, and I think it's an appropriate topic for an occasion like this because the Southern Manifesto just uh, had its 60th anniversary as a document. Um, and obviously, a lot of people here are celebrating an anniversary from when they graduated from law school. Uh, and uh, so it seems appropriate at this time to think about what the Southern Manifesto means. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the civil rights movement is often having 
you know, anniversaries. So Brown versus Board of Education recently celebrated its 60th anniversary. Um, the Civil Rights Move, pardon me, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had its 50th anniversary not long ago. Last year, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had its 50th anniversary, and one sees stories in the media. Uh, where people are writing about what that means and how far we have come as a nation, and for good reason. Um, uh, it seems regrettable, though, that uh, some, of the, uh, some of the less happy uh, dynamics from the civil rights era are not also remembered. Um, and the Southern Manifesto certainly is uh, a not happy moment. What is the Southern Manifesto? It's a document from 1956 uh, in March that said the court's two-year-old decision in Brown versus Board of Education was wrongly, wrongly decided, and it condemned uh, the decision. It was issued by the overwhelming majority of the Southern senators and congressmen um, who uh, disagreed with, with the Brown decision. And so I want to think about the Southern Manifesto, because when we do not pay attention to, the, to documents like the Southern Manifesto, which offers a defense of racial segregation, uh, it can lead to the, mis, uh, to the mistaken conclusion that that document and the mentality that created it bear no relationship to our modern world. Um, that is exactly wrong. And we often think about the Southern Manifesto uh, to the extent that it's thought about at all, uh, as being a document that is bristling with anger and that its defense of uh, racial segregation was overt and hostile and uh, just blatant in its defense of racial segregation. And uh, I just knew that this was the case. I was writing an article for the New Republic, and I wanted to cite it for the proposition of it being openly hostile and bitter and angry. And so I go to look at the document, and I read it once, and it did not say what I knew it said. Um, and so I went back again and thought, well, there, it has to be here. I'm waiting to find the smoking gun of racial bigotry that is right there on the face of the document, and it basically doesn't exist. And so what does one find instead? Um, one finds it is an intensely legal document. Uh, you know, it is based on precedent and original understanding uh, and other modalities of constitutional interpretation. And so uh, the, and this should be no great surprise. Many fine legal minds were responsible for the Southern Manifesto. Uh, Sam Irvin of North Carolina was, uh, you know, obviously a, a United States senator and a graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, John Stennis of Mississippi was a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School. Uh, Russell of Georgia went to the University of Georgia. Strom Thurmond, whose brainchild the Southern Manifesto was, was also a lawyer. And so these folks were very sophisticated at marshalling the arguments that they had uh, before them uh, in order to defend this uh, the system of racial segregation. In order to be uh, avoid being mistaken, I am not uh, you know, a believer, a cheerleader for the Southern Manifesto in any way. Right? I, I despise this document. But I think we, again, do ourselves a great disservice by not 
wrestling with the arguments as they actually were made, uh, because when you do so, uh, you appreciate the sophistication and the flexibility of the argumentation uh, that they made. Um, we sometimes think of segregationists as being intransigent and stiff and un unbending, but uh, they had arguments and they had backup arguments and they were above all lawyerly. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about what the Southern Manifesto was. Um, and one way of viewing it is to regard it as the, um, the anti-Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, as, you all, as many of you know, Brown versus Board of Education is a unanimous decision uh, that is incredibly important to its mythology, and we can understand the Southern Manifesto is offering a dissenting view on the question. Again, it comes two years after Brown, and um, the connections to Brown uh, don't, don't uh, you know, are, are, are also that um, uh, we know that Chief Justice Warren, when he wrote the Brown opinion, wanted to focus on the tone of the opinion. He said that he wanted the opinion to be unemotional, non-rhetorical, and non-accusatory in an effort to, uh, to, to reach white Southerners and feel like they were not being uh, attacked. The Southern Manifesto has a similar idea about tone. Um, it is written in uh, sort of plain language in order to uh, avoid alienating not white Southerners, but instead white Northerners. And so when, where Earl Warren was interested in reaching out to the South and saying, uh, listen, we're not condemning you all as people, uh, the Southern Manifesto conversely was targeted toward the North. Uh, and the, the final connection is uh, the, the emphasis on unanimity where Warren worked very hard in order to have a unanimous court, uh, the people behind the Southern Manifesto thought that they would have greater success if they could get as many people on board as possible. Uh, and they achieved a great amount of success on that front. Uh, they, they wrote it in um, fewer than a thousand words, and it was designed, like Brown versus Board of Education itself, to be reproduced in newspapers around the country because they thought that that would have a greater effect uh, in, in reaching their goal in, in, an, in attempting to not whip up segregationist sentiment in the South, but instead at attempting to tamp down uh, integrationist sentiment in the North. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit more now about what Brown, pardon me, what the Southern Manifesto actually said. Um, as I've said, people think of it as a latter-day rebel yell, um, that it is this angry uh, document, and that's simply uh, not true. They make arguments sounding in text. One of the points that they make um, is that the, uh, the Constitution of the United States does not mention the word education at all, and therefore uh, it's improper that the United States Supreme Court uh, decided the issue as it did. They made an argument about original understanding of the 14th Amendment. Um, they talked about the way in which the framers of the 14th Amendment uh, and the very Congress which proposed the amendment subsequently provided for segregated schools in Washington, D.C., so if, given that, how can it be that this 14th Amendment, they say, uh, requires racial integration? Uh, they, they also talked about precedent. They said there are a long-standing series of precedents that are on our side, 
Um, they obviously talked about Plessy versus Ferguson and uh, separate but equal but, uh, from 1896. Uh, but they also spoke about Gong Lum versus Rice from 1927, a case involving a uh, challenge to racial segregation. Uh, and uh, that case uh, did not find any violation of the Constitution. And so they say, in effect, we have invested uh, the resources of our region uh, in honoring these precedents. And so when the court has pulled the rug out from under us, it's thrown a great deal uh, uh, up in the air. They also make arguments that sound in constitutional structure. Um, they talk about principles of federalism. Uh, and uh, they say that, obviously, um, segregation did exist on the, in the North, Indeed, they, they delighted in saying that the doctrine seems to have originated there uh, in, its, in its schools and uh, that we need to allow, just as the North was permitted to get rid of segregation on its own timetable, the South should be able to do that as well. They said um, that the proper venue, sounding in constitutional structure, was not a, uh, a, a judicial decision, but instead it should have come in the form of an Article Five amendment. Uh, and that's what needed to happen uh, in order to get rid of racial segregation. The Southern Manifesto also uh, made an argument about um, uh, the way in which uh, a sort of a consequentialist argument, cost-benefit analysis argument, and they say that, uh, well, the benefits were, were, were non-existent, right? And that the cost would be that um, it threatens public education as a system within these states, and they suggested that perhaps things were going to shut down altogether. They also made uh, an interesting argument about uh, tradition. Um, they, they make a claim very much echoing Pierce versus Society of Sisters uh, in saying that parents need to be able to control uh, the education of their children, and these judges have come in and taken uh, that away from us. Uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters is a case from the 1920s where, uh, uh, out of Oregon, where they say uh, there's, a, there's a referendum that says we're going to get rid of private schools altogether and religious schools altogether as well. Uh, it was sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan, um, and their concern there was uh, that Catholics, they thought, were not going to be uh, fully Americanized as, uh, through the public school system, and so they should, uh, we need to get rid of those schools altogether. The Supreme Court of the United States steps in and says that's impermissible because the child is not the mere creature of the state. Uh, and so while uh, you know, Thurmond and Irvin and others are studying law, uh, that decision's handed down, and it seems to me that it very much appears in the text of the Southern Manifesto itself. Okay, so uh, that is the, the, the text of the argument. Uh, you know, the, and one of, the, one of the things that's notable about it and one of the ways that you know that the Southern Manifesto is not designed to whip up segregationist sentiment in the South is by the way in which it uh, eschewed the open appeals to racial bigotry that existed even by sophisticated people during that day. Um, the, the people would say the reason to oppose segregation um, 
uh, pardon me, the reason to oppose integration is they would talk about, uh, you know, black criminality. They would speak about a supposed penchant for uh, venereal disease uh, found in the black community. And they would say, we can't have integrated schools because all of these terrible things are uh, going to happen. And they would say that what's really driving the analysis here is um, that they want integrated classrooms because that will pave the way for integrated bedrooms, right? That these are going to have mixed schools and um, that terminology, again, does not appear in the Southern Manifesto itself. And so the fact that they were able to eschew that says that they were sophisticated in deciding which arguments to select and which to uh, avoid. Um, Okay, so... Uh, the, the Southern Manifesto was regarded as being very effective at reaching its audience. Uh, there are letters that exist from A. Philip Randolph, a civil rights leader from the era, saying uh, that this is a really uh, dangerous opinion, uh, the Southern Manifesto, uh, because it's already reached white Northerners, and I can tell, by the way, that it has uh, gotten rid of uh, some of the desire for integration in, in the North. Um, you know, the, there is one uh, truly, uh, you know, regrettable instance of uh, racialized thinking that appears in the Southern Manifesto. So I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that the document is completely free of uh, racial uh, appeals uh, that, are, that, that reveal a uh, regrettable understanding. It says uh, that Brown had destroyed the amicable relations between the white and Negro races and planted hatred and suspicion where there has been heretofore friendship and understanding. Right. So Brown was a, you know, a terrible decision because we had a good thing going here in the South and, uh, and it really came along and, and uh, planted suspicion and hatred. Right. And so this was understood even at the time as being regrettable, but uh, it's a testament to how widespread this idea existed that this uh, made, it, made its way in. People would say, uh, white people in the South would say at the time, black people don't want integration, um, you know, uh, I, I asked my cook, and she told me so, right? Um, and so this was the, the, the sort of dominant mindset. And so it, it does appear there, but it is most... The, the marvel of the Southern Manifesto is not that some of that thinking appears, that, but that so much of it uh, was, was excised, and, and, it, and it simply does not appear on the text of the document. Um, uh, okay. So uh, another important aspect of the Southern Manifesto, and something that complicates... Uh, a dominant understanding in legal circles is the way in which some people say, yeah, you can pay attention to the text of the manifesto, but really what that was designed to do was to lead to lawlessness and violence, right? They may be saying one thing, but what they really mean is something quite distinct. Uh, And so that's an important consideration, and I think it's unavailing. The reason that I think that it's unavailing It's because I found a number of signatories of the Southern Manifesto who expressly not only tell uh, their constituents to avoid violence, but spell out the negative consequences that will flow from violent acts. They say, we will lose the the white north if we commit acts of violence. Um, So there's uh, Alan Ellender of Louisiana said, 
Here's a quote. He says, What the South must avoid at all costs is violence, lawlessness, hatred, and bloodshed. The outside agitators who seek the subjugation of both the white and the Negro races in the South um, are waiting for us to make a misstep. Um, Eastland, James Eastland of Mississippi, made a similar claim. He says, Violence and lawlessness will hurt this organization. Uh, these acts are turned against us by our enemies. They are effectively used to mold public sentiment against us in the North. It is imperative that we be looked upon with favor and have the best wishes of the average American. Right? And so uh, if they were willing to, again, spell out the negative consequences that would flow from violence and say that this is going to hurt us, something that many people think actually played itself out ultimately and that uh, the violence surrounding Little Rock Central in the 1950s and, even more importantly, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the 1960s, um, that, that was, uh, um, those images were so startling to the North that it got people off the cause of, or, pardon me, it got people off of the fence um, on the, as to the question of whether racial integration was required. Um, so uh, that they were able to do that is, in, is indicative about them having the ability to think down the road and identify the consequences that are negative and that they wish to avoid. Okay, they also were incredibly strategic about their defense of racial segregation. Um, it's important to understand that when the Southern Manifesto is introduced that the latest word is not Brown versus Board of Education from the Supreme Court, uh, but instead the far hazier remedial decree in uh, Brown II, the document that famously required integration to unfold at, with all deliberate speed, right? That, uh, that, that incredible uh, sort of paradoxical statement. Um, and so uh, what happened is uh, that, that Brown II happens in 1955. The Southern Manifesto comes out one year later. And what the Southern Manifesto is in effect doing is not so much attempting to defy the law, but instead to define the law and to say that we need to be slow as we pursue racial integration. And so they had a number of hopes and desires uh, as to how to deal with uh, race in schools. Um, one of them was to call for outright reversal. Um, right? The idea here would be that the, the Supreme Court of the United States could uh, reverse its decision and back up. Um, there are people who were saying that that's in the text of the document itself, and people on the outside were saying uh, that that was a product of propaganda and um, of a political court. And if they were political as they agreed to strike down segregation, there's no reason they can't be political uh, in agreeing to reverse that decision. Um, they said we have to take our uh, case at the bar of public opinion in order to try to get the victory that we want. If they couldn't get outright reversal, they also entertained the possibility of a constitutional amendment themselves, allowing uh, states to resolve this issue as they would. Um, that may sound incredibly far-fetched, but in 1956, Brown had not yet attained the sacrosanct status that it would um, over, the, over the course of the next decade. I, many of you know Herbert Wexler in, an, uh, in the late 1950s um, says he can't keep up, he, can't, he cannot identify uh, a, a constitutional argument that makes it clear that Brown was correctly decided, someone who is um, you know, a, a defender of racial integration. But Wexler says, I can't, I can't get there. Um, so uh, when the Southern Manifesto is issued, um, uh, there were um, many people who did think that this should be left up to the states. 
Um, indeed, in 1959, Gallup takes a poll saying, should there um, uh, be uh, you know, a constitutional amendment on this question? And a majority of the respondents supported amending the Constitution. That's across the nation in 1959. Uh, so that's not how we think of it today, uh, that Brown was handed down and people certainly in the North said, uh, amen, thank goodness, uh, but that's not exactly how it was in the 1950s. Okay, so then they also had uh, an argument about uh, doctrine, and they thought that we could, that they could influence the district courts to go slow as they pursued uh, racial integration. Um, these politicians were incredibly attuned to what was happening in the lower courts, um, and they uh, took a page from Judge John Parker of the Fourth Circuit in saying that Brown versus Board of Education does not require integration. It merely forbids segregation, right? Uh, so we can be uh, careful and lawyerly here, and they say that's the correct meaning of Brown. Uh, uh, Sam Irvin was, uh, of, of North Carolina was very much making those arguments, uh, and, uh, and uh, Strom Thurmond was also, he would identify Judge Parker by name. So the idea that these were sort of unsophisticated and, you know, unsophisticated bumpkins who were making these arguments is, is just plain wrong. Okay, um, so they also made a claim uh, that there could be a system of what they called voluntary segregation, right? Uh, because black people don't supposedly want segregation in the South, then um, there would just be yeah, a voluntary system and people would effectively support themselves. Uh, and uh, in the, right when the Southern Manifesto was introduced, when it was introduced, uh, Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina made a fascinating argument in a statement to the press. He said... Um, while the Supreme Court decision is deplorable from the, from the standpoint of constitutional law and ought to be reversed for that reason, it is not as drastic as people think. Right? Uh, so while it's deplorable from the standpoint of constitutional law, it's not as drastic as people think. And over time, what the Southern Manifesto uh, signatories would do would be to de-emphasize the first part of that statement about the decision being deplorable and emphasize the second part of the statement to say it's not as drastic as people think. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Okay, so they also came up with this idea about attendance zones. Um, they, 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 again, delighted in saying whatever keeps schools separate in the north uh, is what we'll do down here in the south. You know, they, they would talk about Harlem in New York City and say, well, you know, last time I checked, there weren't a lot of white students attending school in Harlem, and so whatever works up there for you all, we will imp import uh, down here. Okay, they also talked about um, seg segregating schools not by race, but by sex, that this would be one possibility of avoiding the most catastrophic consequences from uh, racial integration, because the real fear was that there would be black boys with, in schools with white girls. And this would be a method of avoiding that. And some districts, particularly in Louisiana, did uh, attempt that uh, and enact that measure. Uh, so they also talked about abolition of the public schools. Okay, so there has been a fair amount of history here, and it's tempting to think of this as a completely bygone era, one that has no connection to our own world whatsoever. And I want to be clear, obviously the first order argument that the signatories of the Southern Manifesto advanced, asking for Brown to be reversed or 
permitting schools to segregate students by law according to race, obviously that is um, a losing argument and no one uh, who's serious would make the claim that that's the world in which we live today. Nevertheless, it seems mistaken to view the, uh, the Southern Manifesto and its signatories as having suffered a complete and utter defeat. Um, you know, if one understands the more modest claim of trying to tame the meaning of Brown versus Board of Education, uh, it's difficult to view that as a completely unsuccessful movement. Uh, what makes me say that is that the, the move that uh, S- Senator Irvin made in 1956, saying it's not as drastic as people think, over time would carry the day. And it is uh, not merely some sort of hypothetical, but instead it is found in the leading Supreme Court case of the day. It is part of our constitutional doctrine, arguments that Senator Irvin would shape over time. So there's a case from 2007 called The Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle, where I think that Sam Irvin may have ultimately been vindicated. Okay, so uh, let me talk about Irvin's evolution and how we got where we are today and where constitutional doctrine is today. Okay, so as I said, Senator Irvin says, uh, not as drastic as people think. And so uh, that's in 1956, but by 1963, he has made an overt effort to pivot and to try to say Brown doesn't require school districts, even those that were formerly segregated, to take account of race. So in August 1963, uh, Senator, uh, pardon me, uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy comes before a committee that uh, Irvin's on, and um, he did, and that Senator Irvin did not condemn Brown, no longer a frontal assault, but instead uh, attempts to shape Brown. And he says uh, to, to, to Attorney General Kennedy, do you not agree with me that denying a school child the right to attend his neighborhood school and transferring him by bus or otherwise to another community for the purpose of racially mixing the school in that other community is a violation of the 14th Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education, right? It's a very carefully worded question uh, and, is des- and is designed to elicit one answer. And so uh, Attorney General Kennedy's caught somewhat flat-footed here. And according to reporters in the room, he apparently twisted in his chair and he says awkwardly, you could make an argument along those lines. Uh, and, uh, and, and Irvin says in response, I don't see how you can disagree with me. Okay, so flash forward 20 years from that moment when uh, Irvin writes his uh, memoir, which is called Preserving the Constitution. He says um, that he gave priority of thought to the Reconstruction Amendments, and he came to the conclusion, finally, that Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided after all. Uh, and he says, um, uh, the Constitution is colorblind, as the first Justice Harlan maintained in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, and requires the states to ignore the race of school children in assigning them to their public schools. Okay? Uh, and so it's this vision of Brown versus Board of Education that the Supreme Court vindicated ultimately in 2007. Again, there in the case out of Seattle and its companion case out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky, there are uh, school districts that want uh, to have greater amounts of racial integration than would be 
uh, possible uh, if, uh, if just from going from students attending schools in their neighborhoods. And so they take account of race in order to, in their own words, sort of bring the students together so that they can learn to be participants in the diverse society that we have today. Um, so they are, they, the, the, these school districts in Louisville and Kentucky would view themselves as uh, attempting to uh, make the promise of Brown a reality. And in a five to four decision, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down these plans and says that this uh, violates Brown versus Board of Education. The, according to the opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts, the harm in Brown uh, the, the, the harm that Brown combated was assigning students to schools on the basis of race, and that's what these programs do as well. Um, Roberts' opinion says, before Brown, school children were told where they could and could not go to school based on the color of their skin, uh, and that's the issue here. When it comes to using race to assign children to schools, history will be heard, he says. Um, and so this invalidation of these uh, programs is uh, an incredibly important legacy of uh, the signatories of the Southern Manifesto, I argue. And so I think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts was exactly right when he said that history will be heard uh, through that argument that he was making, but it was not the sort of history that he had in mind. And uh, in 2007, uh, when I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court for Justice Breyer, uh, you know, I can remember reading that opinion and watching it come, it come around. Uh, and I was unaware of this history at that time. Uh, but I do think that in 2007 uh, that somewhere Senator Sam Irvin was smiling. Okay, with that, I will open it up to questions and objections and uh, anything else that you all have. Don't be bashful. We here at the University of Chicago. Yes? Correct. And I didn't ask you about the Southern Manifesto. I, I, um, probably should have, but I asked him about the Civil Rights Bill, the 63 Civil Rights Act, which he also voted against. And I said, sort of, you know, he's, he was now gone from the Senate, and I said, why'd you do that? You know, he was clearly a, um, he was a liberal, as, as became clear when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he became foremost opponent of the Vietnam War in the Senate. And I said, why'd you do that? And he said, oh yeah, he said, I, I, I didn't believe in it. Uh, he said, I didn't believe in it. Um, I did it because my constituents demanded it. I'm wondering, were there others like that? I mean, because the group of them, I guess Lyndon Johnson did not sign it, but almost every other Southern senator and congressman did. Um, and uh, were there others who in later life said, admitted that really they had done it for political reasons, that they didn't really believe it, or at least didn't believe it anymore? Wonderful question. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so, yes, um, Senator Fulbright did uh, sign the Southern Manifesto. Uh, of the 22 senators in the Old South, 
19 of them signed, signed it. Johnson did not sign it exactly as you say. He was majority leader at the time, and he made the claim that he, didn't, he wasn't really aware of it, and they wouldn't have wanted him to sign it. Lyndon Johnson, a shrewd tactician, right? Um, uh, and then the two senators from, from uh, Tennessee, uh, Gore, uh, the vice president's father, uh, and Kefover also did not sign it. Um, so, uh, yeah, Fulbright is a fascinating figure. He was regarded as... Um, you know, a very cosmopolitan figure. Uh, he, was a, he was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, and many people at the time said, he doesn't really believe that, right? Uh, you know, he uh, has to do so for his constituents, um, exactly as you suggest. And, but they did, they did seem to think, uh, people at the time, uh, that one could not be both sophisticated and bright and a segregationist at the same time, and there's no reason to believe that Fulbright was not uh, a segregationist. One legacy of the Southern Manifesto is that, uh, in many ways, Fulbright is, is a casualty. He's going to be Secretary of State in the Kennedy administration, just about everyone believes, and uh, his signing the Southern Manifesto was seen as a very uh, hurtful thing to have done at that time. So a lot of people did try to, in effect, um, uh, waffle on this, and you know, Fulbright signed only after circulating a statement where he suggested that he had you know, defanged it, in effect, and he made it more powerful than it actually was when the original draft by Strom Thurmond uh, didn't move all that much. Um, there were some slight, slight tweaks and modifications that were done as a result of the committee. Uh, but yeah, this did cause people pain going forward. And some, some of the people in the House that did not sign it um, in the House of Representatives um, would say uh, they didn't sign it, but uh, they would say we didn't sign it because they didn't think that was the most effective way of defending segregation, right? There's a congressman from Texas called Pogue who says, uh, you know, the way to do this is not to go on a hill and to howl at a moon like a bunch of coyotes here, right, drawing attention to yourselves. We can just sort of slow walk this, and this is the better way to do this. Um, so this was uh, something that really did cause people a great, uh, a great amount of pain, having, having signed it over, over the course of time. And people would say, yeah, that wasn't really me. Those weren't my, those weren't my, uh, my, true, my true views. So thanks. Other questions? Please. I actually looked up the Southern Manifesto and read it on my smartphone while you were speaking, and I'm particularly struck by the 11th paragraph to which you adverted and uh, paraphrased, if not entirely quoted. It's a short paragraph consisting of three sentences that I would like to quote. Um, It says, This unwarranted exercise of power by the court, contrary to the Constitution, is creating chaos and confusion in the states principally affected. It is destroying the amicable relations between the white and Negro races that have been created through 90 years of patient effort by the good people of both races. It has planted hatred and suspicion where there has been heretofore friendship and understanding. And when you adverted to that paragraph and paraphrased the language, perhaps quoted in the second sentence, there was a certain knowing tittering of laughter here, here in the room. Let me say that I have lived in the South, uh, the Deep South, the Mid-South, as well as the North, the Northeast, the East Coast, and the Midwest. And you mentioned Louisville, Kentucky in particular. I can tell you from having spent a great deal of 
time in Louisville, where my mother, who recently passed, was from, that there is a great deal more of racial integration in and around Louisville, Kentucky, than you see in and around Chicago, Illinois, which, despite its vast diversity, remains uh, famously one of the more segregated cities in the United States of America, if not the world. My second point is that I was struck by how similar the language of this paragraph, and in particular the last sentence, is to Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in Obergefell last term, which of course constitutionalized the right to marriage, in which, paraphrasing the chief, he said something like, um, in much more erudite terms, it's a shame that the court has taken this decision out of the hands of the people, especially when the wind seemed to be so much at the backs uh, of the people in favor of same-sex marriage. So my, my question with yet another uh, very controversial at the time Supreme Court precedent in mind is this. Can we not view Brown versus Board of Education Roe versus Wade, and now Obergefell, is three extremely powerful and important Supreme Court precedents that no matter how laudable we agree the results may be, are really very troubling from a standpoint of trying to square them with the language and the intent of the Constitution. Okay, uh, so there's, there's a lot there. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, uh, I'll try to begin where you began by, um, uh, by, by trying to pay attention to the racial dynamics that existed in the North. I mean, I think it's an important point uh, that, and something that the framers of the Southern Manifesto often uh, tried to uh, point to the North and say, the people who are going to feel this issue most acutely are those in the South. And in some of my other work, um, I paid attention to the where black people were in the nation in the 1950s. And the overwhelming majority of the black people in the nation in the 1950s were in the South, not uh, in the North. And so um, in that work, I tried to suggest that uh, the opinion polls that were taken in the immediate aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education uh, were needed to be taken with a grain of salt as to whether people agreed with the decision or disagreed with the decision, uh, because in many states where there are very few uh, black people, this is a hypothetical and an abstraction, right? Uh, and so, uh, and um, I am uh, uh, sympathetic, even dare I say, uh, to the claim. Uh, by white Southerners at the time, look at w what's happening in the North with respect to uh, race. Obviously, anybody who is paying attention to the composition of our schools in today's society is aware that uh, there are very few schools that really sort of look like the racial composition of the nation as a whole, right? Um, uh, so that's, uh, you know, a, a real uh, cause for distress. Okay, um, Okay, on the on the on the on the other question um, about whether uh, you know Brown and Roe and Obergefell, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know that we could be here for, uh, for a long time if I were to talk about each of those, but you know, I mean, um, I'll, I'll say this. With Brown versus Board of Education, I think that um, if I understood the thrust of the question, I think that's a relatively unusual take that Brown is difficult to square uh, with uh, constitutional principles. Um, it's true that, uh, you know, it's uh, that the intent uh, of the framers may not have been that, but that's not the only way that we interpret the Constitution, and many people obviously understand uh, the Equal Protection Clause to have articulated a principle uh, and that it arose from uh, the Civil War and that, that that principle was one of racial equality and that the Brown decision was very much designed to... Uh, to uh, to uh, to give voice to that to that commitment, uh, so I think it is un- an unusual uh, position to say that maybe Brown was constitutionally regrettable. Um, in, and as to the other decision, and, and, and it's worth saying how quickly uh, Brown was accepted. One of the reasons, of course, that it fostered. Uh, or that it, it generated such widespread agreement was because people could pledge allegiance to Brown while turning to salute in very different directions, right? I mean, yeah, everybody agrees that Brown was rightly decided, but deep disagreement about what Brown actually means. Um, and that emerged very quickly. That emerged very quickly. During Potter Stewart's confirmation hearings, um, he said he thought Brown was rightly decided, um, and those happened uh, in relatively short order after Brown. Uh, it, it's, it's obviously the other two opinions. Uh, Roe was decided a long time ago now. Um, you know, it, is, it, is, uh, it, it was decided more than four decades ago, right? Something like 43 years ago. Um, it, it is uh, you know, worth thinking about uh, the difference in reception from uh, Brown to Roe uh, and in Obergefell. That's not to say, of course, that simply because a decision is unpopular, therefore it is unconstitutional or it should be rethought. Um, there are many decisions that, are, uh, that are, uh, remain controversial, uh, but that, that, that many people think are completely compatible with the Constitution. I'm writing um, a book right now about uh, the Constitution and the Supreme Court's constitutional interpretations as they have played a role in public schools and a uh, few decisions have been more controversy and generated more durable controversy than the court's decisions involving religion in public schools. Uh, those decisions are still widely unpopular, but many people think that uh, that is uh, compatible with the Constitution. With that, I'll, uh, well, I, there, yeah, we have time for more questions as well. One, one more question, and then we should call it a day. I'm not sure this is going to come out as a question, but but I'm going to give it a try. Um, I came to the University of Chicago Law School, and I found it very lawyerly, which is excellent. That's something that is appreciated. But I found that also lacking. So I left in the middle of law school and went down to Macomb, Mississippi, and became a civil rights worker. And after law school, I went down and tried the cases you're talking about. I tried school desegregation cases. I tried cases where they separated by sex. Uh, I, too, founded a strange culture, so I became a scholar of the culture and have read a tremendous amount. 
and I applaud you for touching the th one of the third rails in American history, which is race. But I'm afraid that it, you, you, you leave it a little short when you simply approach it in a more lawyerly way. And that was my problem in law school, and it's the reason I left, but it's the reason I used the craft that I got in law school to fight for all of the things that you're talking about and why I still fight and will continue fighting. First of all, when you send your national representatives to Washington and they come back and they bless segregation, which I have seen up front and personal living in the African-American communities in the South and representing the people there. When they come back and issue manifestos like this, I know that it is not the scope of your paper, but you need to appreciate the message that sends to the citizens' councils, which are the uptown business people across the South, and the message that sends to the Klan, and it bleeds over. And then you have to fight all these things, and it bleeds into a decision that I've talked about in speeches called United States versus Wood, where Judge Cameron says exactly what that 11th paragraph says about how good things were when they were the antithesis of good, it was evil. So you can dress up evil in a pleasant manifesto using legal skills, but it's evil. So thanks, thanks for that comment. Uh, I do appreciate it. Um, I have written a law review article uh, that uh, I, I, hope, I, I hope that I can send to you, and I would be very grateful for whatever feedback you have. Um, in that law review article, I actually have a copy of it here, you know, I call, I call the Southern Manifesto an atrocity. Um, I think that that's what it was. When the nation was preparing to move headlong toward racial integration, uh, these folks were dedicated to stopping that proposition. So you and I, I think, um, are in complete agreement. What I think is mistaken is not wrestling with the arguments uh, that they actually made and not subjecting them to uh, scrutiny. Uh, and I, the, my problem with the Southern Manifesto is that it is, one of my many problems with the Southern Manifesto, I should say, is that it is more often cited than it is read. And if you think that the words themselves don't matter, uh, that seems to me to be, um, you know, uh, uh, deeply mistaken. Um, I am in complete agreement with you that lawyers' skills can be used for ill uh, and for good. Uh, but if you uh, think that it does not matter that these folks were lawyerly, um, I, think, I, think that that, that is, I think that's wrong. And the reason that I think that it's wrong is that they were uh, marvelously effective at limiting Brown versus Board of Education, uh, which is obviously, at the, I mean, at the risk of saying the obvious, I mean, and I think of Brown versus Board of, Edu Brown versus Board of Education as being 
incredibly uh, important uh, achievement and uh, 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 one whose uh, full scope has yet to be filled. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.